Welcome to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast with your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of the Mill Creek View newspaper. Welcome back to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast. We are focusing on the volunteer state and our nation today with always an interesting person making a positive change in our community. This time, special guest, Alan Shacklock. But first, for more information about the stable of Mill Creek View podcast, visit us anywhere you get your podcasts and socials at Mill Creek View, Tennessee. Go ahead and subscribe. It's totally free to you. You'll make producer Steve very happy. He likes to be happy. Welcome to our People in the News episode, where I interview people who are making an impact and are lovers of truth and happy. Today, we are talking with Alan Shacklock. Alan's celebrated musical career has achieved international acclaim for his work in classical, rock, contemporary Christian, and film genres. His creative genius is multifaceted, having produced, performed, composed, and arranged orchestral pieces for over 50 major release albums while working with some of the world's most renowned artists and leading record labels. Although he is recognized as one of rock's leading guitarists, Alan is a classically trained graduate of the Royal Colleges of Music in London. Engaging, we'll try to get his accent. Engaging the next generation, Alan is a professor and teaches courses in both audio technology and music business programs at Belmont University, as well as SAE Institute. Along with additional colleagues, Alan participates in the Student Abroad Program, a faculty-led short program where students experience a month in London as the natives and music industry professionals do. Alan, how are you today? I'm great. It's good to see you, Steve. Awesome. Are you up there in Belmont right now? I am actually at home today because we are home recording with a, a new artist, uh, Corridan. He's a gospel kind of alternative artist, and we're very excited about that. I oh, have that's my, great. I, I have my friend Mark Brzezicki here with me, who's been my lifelong friend, drummer, who uh, actually played on the very first Roger Daltrey solo album that I did. He, Mark was the resident drummer on that thing so there's a good some good stories there all uh, right well we'll get into them i, I yes, have some uh, questions uh, later on about another one of your new artists and um yeah, that's one of my first music teachers said the best drummer you'll ever have is a metronome so it sounds like you've got uh, even you better go. than that <laughs> I, I have i have better than that. i have a live one <laughs> there you go there you go well you are a classically trained graduate of the royal colleges of music yes, in london so, you be able to see from a mile away one of these garage band mickey mouse club what i call barbie doll actors that can't play any instruments but hit yeah. a big with auto-tune what's your opinion of the industry that pumps out bubblegum instead of masters of their instruments like from royal college of music wow there's a big one uh i think it has its place uh obviously commercially you know we're in the land of Taylor Swift now uh, in this era, and that's a relevant thing. I don't think we'll ever see a phenomenon like that uh, happening again. Maybe not, but uh, you know, she—they prove their worth, and they very, very successful. So you know, there's nothing really uh, to compare it to cl classical music. It's not really fair. Classical music is a different animal to that you know but uh that's what i think anyway and her fans spend a lot of money on taylor swift swag and i don't know if classical artists get uh, a following well, like that where they can make a business out of it <laughs> unfortunately i don't think it's quite as glamorous but certainly as far as 
technical musical technical stuff with technique it, it's off the charts you know with classical stuff and uh it's good to see new people coming through all the time in fact we've just made uh, a classical recording in within the last year with a couple of my colleagues carmine miranda who plays cello and uh robert marlow who happens to be the resident pianist for the national symphony so um we've done a uh a record with uh, Rachmaninoff and uh, Shostakovich cello sonatas. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm glad you're yeah. keeping it alive. Keeping it alive. Um, yeah. how, how old is that? Uh, what, the music? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. We're going past the turn of the century here. Yeah. So we're around that era. It's in kind of semi-classical modern. That's good. Okay. Well, it used to be that an artist like Elvis or Johnny Cash would release a single. Yeah. And it got radio played. And then an album came out later. Now it's not like that. It's a single, like Jason Aldean, for example, um, try that in a small town and it hits number one on iTunes and goes on radio. And now his album comes out in a few days, yeah. but they don't make money on the album, right? Spotify, <laughs> Spotify well, pays like do, 0.004 per, per play. <laughs> well, in different ways. The paradigm, as you know, probably has shifted uh, since about the mid 2000, 2005 and six, when everything became free on the internet because of certain uh, companies. I'm not sure I'm allowed to uh, say, but uh, <clears throat> they offered stuff up free. So the whole paradigm changed from our old school, uh, really our old school model, which was, you know, how many records you sold <laughs> and over the counter records, which is what our income and artist income came from. But uh, not to get too technical, but it really all just by the time 2010 had hit us, it was all over. It went certainly completely almost product, physical product, as we know it in the industry, like your CDs, your vinyl, all that kind of went away. Vinyl made a valiant romantic comeback, I'm happy to say, but uh, it really didn't make a, a big enough dent so what happened was obviously the paradigm had to shift and certain income streams had to come from different places so the artists definitely started to dig into live performance which is very important they also uh made money from the live performance you know the actual physical performance but also they would make money from what they call their merchandise which is T-shirts and everything else, you know. Um, so that became a serious, uh, a serious uh, change for the industry, and we had to roll with that. So um, that's that's where we really are now, uh, from then to now. Like Stevie Winwood said, uh, roll with it. Um, they kind of did it to themselves. I think about this quite a bit, didn't they? I, I think it was David Lee Roth that said. You just need a good four song A side and nobody cares about the junk on the B side. And that was obviously some, a big change some, from some do some do some, some really love, I love all the, the background stuff, but yes. Well, yes, yes. That's for the kids these days that don't know what an album is and that it's pressed in, on in a, vinyl. In a sense, he's right. You know, we, you can, you can go with the, the, the main singles and that's all they're really bothered about. So that's that whole uh, pop thing. Yeah. So, so, cool. 
Live Nation did these 360 deals or 360 contracts, also known as a multiple rights agreement. Uh, Record companies are able to participate in non-recorded rights, such as the artist tours. You were talking about that. Yeah. Was that the savior of the industry? Well, there's several different aspects to that if you want to dig into it. But one is, of course, the merchandise we mentioned. And then uh, now there's a very serious uh, income stream changer, which is sync, which is synchronization fees, which comes from anything from sound with a picture. So from commercials, from movies, any any of that stuff, that certainly is something that's considered as one of those 360 incomes, as you say. And then the publishing side of things as well, which is another aspect of it so the publishers would still get their share of it and uh um even more you know different things that been that came out of that but mainly uh, i guess it's a household thing now everybody knows seems to know what a 360 deal is so and it's it's not easy because you know there's everybody wanting a little piece of the pie but that's where the income comes from now. So, I mean, something as colossal as a Taylor Swift, it, it's really off the chain as far as the income. I do want to talk a little bit more about the industry before we get into all your wonderful um, yeah. career experiences. But back in 2000, so 23 yes. years ago, yes. the compact disc sales actually topped at an all-time high of $785 million. Wow. Sales, however, dropped in 2008, eight years later, to 535 million albums. Yeah. With the increase of peer-to-peer network sweeping the nation, major labels started adopting a new method to making money. British pop star Robbie Williams' 2002 contract with EMI was an early 360 deal. The wow. trend continued when Warner included merchandising in its contract with the band My Chemical Romance in 2003 on the thought that the merchandising venture quote, might be a nice little addition to the pot, end quote. Used to be guys could make a living selling t-shirts outside the venue. With that, 360, no more of that, right? Now Live Nation gets everything. Mm-hmm. Well, in, interestingly, you know, it's it's become a science now with promoters and all stuff like that. And really, we all have to come under that umbrella so we know, you know, where, they, where our next meal's coming from from because we all love to eat at least every other day you know (laughs) back in the days the 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 young scrawny uh rock star didn't oh yeah yeah uh, we were all in there at one point yeah yes sir jay-z followed madonna signing a 150 million dollar deal with live nation and that solidified the 360 contracts in the music industry and edgar broffman ceo of warner music Yes. He said in 2008 that all new acts were required to sign 360 deals. A recent calculation from the United Kingdom shown that the record labels have generated an extra 114.4 million U.S. dollars in extra revenue due in part to these contracts. So without them, maybe we're in a worse scenario than we are today with them. I don't think it's that been that popular uh, the, the 360 i mean <laughs> when it comes down to the artists you know getting their they get less concert money or gig money as we know it um you know if they have to pay everybody 10 percent of that they're not real happy with that i wouldn't be i don't think but yeah. it, it, it is now part of our new our new model you know so that's it 
for more established artists, the tours usually don't lose any money, but the new artists hold the risk of losing all the money. It's a a risk and has to be invested into for the new artists, you know, so they're all taking a risk somehow, Um, but hopefully that works out for them. And COVID, of course, shut that down for two years. And now, yeah. you know, my gosh, I've been looking at shows and We've way done. up high at Nissan Stadium are 100 to 400 to $500, $1,000 or more yeah. up front. Who can afford that as fans? Not really. I don't think I could. No, yeah. I couldn't. It's I, like I, the CDs. I remember I, when. Not to soapbox, but I wish the artists would really step in and start to, you know, make that a little bit more reasonable for the average person. Yeah, with the 360 they, contract, they, maybe they don't have any voice anymore. They, they may have a control of it. I think if you're, you know, that big, if you're a McCartney or a Taylor Swift or anything like that, there's certainly some pull, I would imagine. But do you it know, reminds me of the CDs in general. Remember when they were inching up to like $15, $20 or oh, yeah. Guns N' Roses oh. split their album into two, yeah. so they made double. Oh. And then Napster came along and then Spotify and iTunes killed them oh, over you that said, whole price. You, you said the words that I didn't think I was allowed to say, but yeah, that's yeah. that's exactly it. You know, that was exactly it. They killed the whole deal. We, in fact, got a record out with, with Babe Ruth, which was my original band. We were still recording about 2006 we put an album out and napster came along and put it up for free so you know we weren't really charging like wild money like about ten dollars or something you know in that region for you know 50 60 minutes of music it's not bad yeah i mean there are guys like um and they came along chris ledoux or um now Cody Johnson, who used to sell the press CDs out of the back of their trunk of the car at the rodeo. That's how they made their living. And they can't do it anymore because you can hear it for free. Right. That's right. And, you know, what's the kid going to do? Is he going to buy it or take it for free? I don't know. I actually love buying records. It's it's, from my generation, it excites me to go out and buy a new record. Yeah. No, (laughs) and I wish there were places. I used to go to Tower Records on Sunset Boulevard. That was a great thing. You see the artists themselves and Uh, and then buy their album and get them to sign it. Yeah, Uh, flipping flipping through the albums, it was was such a wonderful experience, but uh, fading away, unfortunately. So Pearl Jam, you know, they fought Ticketmaster over fees and they lost the war. Obviously, we just talked about that. Metallica fought Napster and lost the war because streaming isn't... uh, yeah. But, you know, streaming isn't even an audiophile's best listening experience, right? It's it's wow. compressed on both ends, so you don't hear such the music a, nearly so well as a low, record. Such a low income now. You know, it's really uh, almost criminal, I will say, not to hang myself here, but the, the remuneration, to use that term, from yeah. that is nothing. You know, you, you, I, have, I have a friend who... I don't know, he had 40 million plays or something, and he got like 80 bucks. <clears throat> so sorry. And before, that would be on an album, maybe you get a dollar an album, so $40 million versus oh, 80 yeah. bucks. Or, if, that was, yeah. if that was the back in the day, we'd be looking at some good, good income there. Unbelievable. Okay. Well, that also created great music. I mean, Pink Floyd and Rolling Stones and all these albums, they could afford to go on and do this forever, not just play one time on the radio and be done, Um, which I guess would be the mass market, which is why live music and what you do composing symphonic classics, the experience is is so much better than headphones listening to iTunes. Yeah. 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 
well, well, good. Yeah, I mean, we we we're still moving, you know, somehow. That's great. And I wanted to talk a little bit about record royalties. Um, yes, they diff, differ depending on whether an artist is new or has reached superstar status. I saw that this metal band called Corn. They, they get upwards of 70% royalties under their 360 contract and a band like Paramore received 30% of profits from album sales under that same 360 contract compared to traditional contracts that typically distribute 13 to 18% royalties for new artists. Um, and I mentioned Spotify's 0.0004 cents per play. Is that a model that can last long into the future or... Yeah, well, is it going to change it, again? It really depends. You know what I always tell everybody: everything in this industry is the N word, which is negotiable. You know, you it you are what you can negotiate. A band with the with the with the weight of tool can really call it whatever they want. You know, it was a bit like when I believe when back in the day when Stevie Wonder resigned his his thing with Motown, he got 25%. This was unheard of back then. If you remember, you'll you'll know that uh, most of through the 60s, the Beatles <laughs> were on four. That's one, two, three, four percent. Four percent. Oh my goodness. Four percent. Yeah. And it was it that was almost criminal at the time. But in a way, the record companies are giving the big biggest investment into that. So they figured they owed, they were owed that other money, you know, the the other ninety six or whatever. But it 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 now it's got a little fairer in certain ways because of what's called licensing. So now because of the technology where we are, where a lot of artists can make their own records, literally finance because of the modern technology being so readily at hand, and and you know the average kid with a with a pretty good laptop can make a make a record <clears throat> that's changed the paradigm there as well because that means the artist can make the record and then lease it back in fact we we've uh, heard of a we've been involved in one of those uh i don't think it was even out yet but i don't know whether you remember a band in america they're an english band called the cult oh yeah um, ian ashbury yeah yeah so they and in actual fact, my dear friend Mark was with me. He played on the original recording. And then about three years ago, we got a call saying from Billy and the band saying, we want to re-record our hits to put it out. And we made an absolute exact copy of those records. <laughs> now, it may, it may surface. I hope it does for the fans. But what that does is, you see that, that bypasses the record label. So the band get straight money from that. They get their own music back by think, re well, redoing think, their own music. I yeah. think dear, dear old Van Morrison was one of the first I'd heard of doing that. And he re-recorded the song called Brown Eyed Girl. I don't know whether any of your <clears throat> any of your uh, listeners will be old enough to know oh, yeah, that. No, that's that's played did, at every wedding ever. Yeah. yeah he, did, um, he did that and re-recorded it exactly. And then you know, went around the label. So that's and a little known trivia. The very first incarnation of the cult was called the Southern Death Cult. Southern Death Cult. Yeah. It was, yep. um, and actually I produced an offshoot from that, which was a band called Spear of Destiny. And it was Kirk Brandon who was actually involved in Southern Death Cult, I think, originally. And then he, he went off and formed his own 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've seen him in airports too. Uh, yeah. I actually have a drumstick from their band. I, I've seen okay. them many times, but you know, Hollywood was just on strike with the writers, kind of with the same thing we're talking about. Streaming royalties and yeah. actors are still on strike. Uh, last I looked over using their images with AI, a little yeah. bit of what you talked about. And that chat GPT thing makes a pretty killer singer songwriter, almost like a metronome yeah. being a band's best drummer. Um, well, what do you make of of the music industry, or not the music industry, the entertainment industry's writers and actor strike, and how it relates to what you're trying to accomplish in music? God bless them. I mean, I I probably think that they deserve everything they want, you know, because it's still a multi million dollar industry and billion dollar industry, I should say. And certainly, these people make it work. You know, they they're the they're the inner workings of that and I'm sure they they are within their rights to want you know better money you know as we all do <laughs> at some point things are getting crazy where you know things are very expensive now yeah and I know that the video game market dwarfs the um or I guess the opposite is a huge shadow over the entertainment industry in terms of movies and the music as mm -hmm. well but we have movies or video games like the uh when Pierce Brosnan was James Bond, they stuck his image in there with the yeah. music and no one got paid except Electronic Arts or whoever it was that was the video game company. So I think yeah. there has something to do with that. And you're right. They deserve it. If it's their image, they should be paid. I think if they're using what what we call, I think it's the image uh, in the industry that, that's their image, they certainly have a say in what goes on with that, I would imagine. Yeah, like rock band I'm, or whatever. I'm, unfortunately, I'm not an attorney, but <laughs> I know. But I bet you Ian Ashbury wants a piece of what he's deserved. So I can. Sure, I, that's I, right, and, and they deserve it. You know, a lot yeah. of them. Do. You know, it's it's uh, it, it's always been an interesting Wild West ride, the industry, right from when I first got going in the '60s, and it's it's the wild wild west and really you're you're either as good as your manager or your attorney normally yeah i even know careers that were put on hold because of the oil embargo in the 70s and you couldn't press vinyl so there's there's been all That's kinds right. of historical I remember stories that. and in actual fact england at that point uh at 1973 um went down to a three-day week the whole country it was it was that bad and I remember I was bringing more money into our house than my dad. I was living with my parents then. <laughs> so my dad was a mailman. So he, I was bringing money from the band in. So we were keeping ends and meat that way, you know. Just the opposite of most stories where the parents are like, you'll never make anything out of uh, that music. And my dad never said that to me. He never said, look, go and get a real job. You know, he never said that, which is unusual. He was always very encouraging right from the day one when I first got the old five dollar guitar that he bought me for my birthday on when i was 10. the uk so. has always been known for being very supportive of their artists between david bowie and and oh, pink yeah. floyd which i know you worked with and and the stones and the who and the, the clash everybody they've always had a very supportive industry uh, of... yeah i i must i must just frame the pink floyd i didn't i worked with alan parsons not not the pink floyd oh. if i would have work with the Pink Floyd, I would be owning this whole thing. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, or you'd be uh, an angry old man like, like the bass player. But okay. And, and, isn't that a shame? They should be very happy, really, shouldn't they? He should. But he's playing it up. He's playing without it up. Soap, he's getting... Without soapboxing about 
the old dudes, but uh, I think they should all all be very happy. They've made it this far. And yeah, Keith, most of them don't make it out alive, so that's good. And Keith and Keith Rich is laughing about I I outlived everybody. <laughs> all right, let's talk about you. You've outlived everybody too. Wingmore Hall, one of the world's great concert halls, specializing in chamber music, is where you made your classical music debut. Tell us about yeah. that. Well, that was thrilling for me and terrifying at the same time. Um, I had a, a, a professor at the Royal College of Music. There's two uh, colleges there, just to differentiate with your listeners. There's the Royal Academy of Music and the Royal College of Music. And, and both those were, I, I had attended both. I did my undergrad grad at the Royal Academy and then a postgrad at the Royal College. So the postgrad, uh, my major study was an instrument called the lute, which is L-U-T-E. Yeah. And it concentrated on music from about 1500 through about the Baroque, uh, you say Baroque, yeah, yeah, era through to Bach. So I, I really did that as, a, as a, an intense study. My instructor, uh, at the Royal College was the legendary Jacob Lindbergh, who is from Sweden originally. And he was my my instructor there. And um, he, after about a few weeks, he said, we should form a group with me. So I said, you really want me in your group? I said, I'm really an Indian, you know, because he had people that were at the top of the tree, Monica Huggett, who was playing with the, the Amsterdam Baroque Orchestra. She was, in fact, the leader. And then there was Lisa Besnesuk. And this kind of level of musician was the highest you could find. And I found myself a little bit of an Indian in it. So I said, well, if you want me in there, I can actually take us into Abbey Road, which I knew from my rock days. And I said, we can probably make a recording, which we did. And he said, no, he said, I, I would really like to do um, a debut concert at the Wigmore Hall that you mentioned. I guess your closest, I, I, I don't know, I wouldn't, I'm going to say Carnegie Hall. Probably, yeah. About the equivalent here, I, I think, in the United States. So this is a very prestigious concert. So what we had was we had a thing called a broken consort, and it's not broken. It's uh, actually uh, comprises of a, a violin, a viola da gamba, which is a bit like cello but it's actually got six strings and then uh, the Baroque flutes and then two other pluckers, which was me and another guy called Robin Jeffrey. <clears throat> so we were kind of, it, back in the day when the polyphonic instruments to get technical, it, it's the instruments that could play chords. Uh, they were these massive lutes. They would have like an extra uh, uh, neck. Mm. You'd have extra basses to play. And in actual fact, it was just a, a sexier way of presenting the harpsichord, really. Because okay. so you see these, it was a, <laughs> a spinal tap. You know, you've got these three big things. Next, so, yeah. Um, it, it, it was a thrill for me to play with that calibre and be asked to play with that, that calibre of musician, uh, you know. And we did, in fact, do that concert. And it was very well received, very well received. 
And you perform live with some of the greatest artists the world has ever known. I mean, Phil Collins, oh. Roger Daltrey, yeah, Julian yeah. Lennon, Yoko Ono, John yeah. Bonham, I believe, uh, yeah. Carl Palmer from Emerson, yeah. Lake and Palmer, uh, The Alarm, <laughs> your band, Babe Ruth, and the UK's Juniors, uh, which was Mick Taylor of the Rolling Stones and uh, the late John Glasscock of Jethro Tull. Babe Ruth was your band. Um, did you yeah. like performing more or <clears throat> do you like composing more? I, I really loved the recording studio. Um, that was my my sort of romantic love, I guess, because um, I guess I was 21 years old when we got signed with Babe Ruth. And then at that particular time, uh, EMI, the record label, uh, we were on a <clears throat> what's called an imprint on that label, which was Harvest Records. Harvest Records, your listeners might know, that had ELO, uh, we had Roy Wood's Wizard, and of course the Pink Floyd uh, with a flagship there. And we, we got signed to that label, which was kind of what we used to call art rock or prog rock, I think it's been dubbed. Um, so <clears throat> um, we were immediately grandfathered in to Abbey Road Studios to make our, our first record. Um way back in the day then almost 50 years now and uh, <clears throat> so that's what happened there and uh through the through my teenage years i i'd been lucky enough to get signed when i was 13 i was signed to emi again when i was 13 with a band called the juniors which mick taylor was part of and john glasscock was part of and brian indeed who was john's brother he ended up in a group called probably the most uh, prestigious one he was the motels I don't know whether you remember the motels from LA anyway um, that was an anomaly we had a high school band and we knew people and our local store owner said I think I can get you an audition with somebody and then eventually EMI and we did we in fact did go to EMI I don't know whether you know that Beatles cover where they're kind of looking over a balcony it was one of the original covers that was the EMI Center in Manchester mm. Square. So I think we, they recorded an album on that roof, didn't they? No, that was a different one. That was oh. uh, that was Apple. But uh, anyway, we went to that office and you know set our equipment up in the office. And of course, there's the three grumpy old men, you know, with the ties and the pens in the pockets, looking very stern at us. And you know, we played like a few songs and then went out. And they eventually signed us, and we made a single in um, Lansdowne Studios, which was uh, really home to the Dave Clark Five. This is probably digging far too back for your listeners. Dave Clark Five. Well, producer Steve knows what you're talking about. He's nodding like got, a they child got very, of a candy store. Stay with me, Steve. We've got, we've, uh, we've got uh, Dave Clark Five were very, very popular, almost as popular as the Beatles in that. They had a big song called Glad All Over and Bits and Pieces and all the stuff like that. But they recorded in this particular studio, which we did a single in. And then we got on national TV, you know, um, with people like the Kinks, Herman's Hermits, the Zombies. We were on with those people. We, we were kids. You've got to remember, John was 12 when we were playing <laughs> and I was 13. And, you know, that was. And then we'd be, you know, on national TV on a Friday and then sitting back in school on Monday and the therapy ensues, you know, either your buddies, <laughs> your buddies love you or they hate you. you know? That's but, amazing. Yeah, 
you know, it makes it, me think it, when you said set, set up your equipment for the old guys in the suits, it makes me think of Duran Duran and their quote of how they didn't like to carry their instruments or too heavy, so they didn't learn to play any. They would just show up and do their, their modeling, basically. So, That's funny. That's funny. Um, but anyway, that morphed into another group called the High Numbers. We signed to Decker and we did another single, and then I, I actually uh, went back to high school. I went back to high school after a little break for that band and got my high school diploma and that got me to a full ride to the Royal Academy for Music too. Amazing. And amazing. during that year when I was going, when I was 17, I actually replaced a guitarist called Albert Lee, some of your Oh yeah. Steve knows. And uh I know. <laughs> um he's a legendary and still is still going. Um he would probably be best known from the band, the band called Heads, Hands and Feet, which is originally his band. And then, of course, he played a long time stint with the Everly Brothers. Right. So that was happening during that time. But Albert left and the drummer in the band at that time was Carl Palmer from Emerson, Lake and Palmer. This this band we were backing a soul singer, a British soul singer who had, had some success with a Rolling Stones record called Out of Time. Hmm. And uh, we, uh, Carl was the first drummer. Then Carl left to go with the crazy world of Arthur Brown. And he said, don't worry, don't panic. I'm going to get my friend from Birmingham, who is called John Bonham, to replace me. So John played with us for about three months, something like that. And then he said, well, I can only stay for three months because I'm forming a group with Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones. And I said to him, John, they'll never do it. They'll never do it. And he said, oh, they're doing it. I said, well, they make more money in sessions than anyone else. Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones have played on. If you look at the in on the internet, you can see how many records they played on during that early 60s all the way through almost to Led Zeppelin. And eventually... I saw John again around about my sophomore year at college. I said, did you form the group? He said, oh, yeah. He said, we went to New York or we've been to New York already. We were going to call it the New Yardbirds, but we're calling it Led Zeppelin. Wow. Did you get the joke? Uh, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> did well, you ever he, come across he, Ian Gallagher? He, he, he said uh, that the manager, when they went to New York, said they were it was a horrible gig and they went down, went down like a lead balloon. And that's right. The, right. He said it came from, I, you know, probably read books that I've read, but yeah. So that led us, that led me to, you know, more sessions in that time. And then Babe Ruth happened 72 really. And uh, this is going to date me. I was only two at the time, Steve. So. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. You're the boss. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, well, I don't uh, want to run out of time with you. But then the original, wanna... the original oh, question was, you know, what did I, did I like touring? Yeah. I mean, it was part of the job that you had to do it. We did three, three months tours here with people like we did the whole opening of Frampton Comes Alive album Ooh. in 75, 76, around that time. Uh, and then we were, gosh, we were embarrassed at times when, ZZ's top had to open for us in Milwaukee. You know, we apologized to them and they said, We're okay, man. It's fine. You outsell us here by four. So, no worry. You know, America is such a vast country. It's like 50 different countries in in one place. You know, right. you, 
you know, you can disappear into Texas and never be found again, you know. Like but, Stevie uh, Ray Vaughan, yeah. Yeah, but we we did play, you know, we played alongside some amazing icons, you know, festivals. We played with the Beach Boys, Leon Russell. We played with um, Aerosmith, who we kind of became friends with, just name drop. Even and, Tyler, uh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, we, we really, uh, we did it up in the United States and the United States seemed to like us, you know, even though we were named after one of their fabulous namesakes, it was Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth, the baseball player, right? And I, I, I believe Mrs. Babe Ruth actually liked our record, which was quite a, quite a nice thing. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Actually so mo movie soundtracks um, yes, in the eighties, that became a new source of revenue for Hollywood and bands that yes. played on them like Kenny Loggins yes. and Danny Elfman. Mm -hmm. uh, you got into movies too. Um, Alan has produced title tracks for the major motion picture release Quicksilver starring Kevin Bacon, Doc Hollywood starring Michael J. Fox, and Buddy Song starring Roger Daltrey and Chesney Hawks, yeah. for whom Alan produced a million unit seller, I Am The One and Only, which the Guinness Book of Records immortalized Chesney as the UK's youngest and longest standing artist at number one. Yeah, That's he, he was 16, Ches, when we made the record. Let's just frame this, first of all. Most of those ones you mentioned, Steve, were title track. They like Quicksilver was the title track of of that movie with Kevin Bacon. It wasn't a score; it was a title track. Got so it. they would pick a track that was from. Uh, uh, in fact, that was a great story. It was actually Giorgio Moroder, the the great disco com uh, producer composer, who had composed that song. And when I was recording Roger Daltrey in, in London, England, in Rack Studios, um, he I got a message from his people in Geneva saying he would, wanted us to do it. So I said, well, look, send me all your, your synthesizers, because he was great at that. And I said, I'll have my band play over it. So that's exactly what, what happened. And then we got that out, and that was the title track of that movie. Um, some of the other ones you mentioned uh uh, Chesney got into a, an old movie and some of the people would remember Michael J. Fox called Doc Hollywood and uh, it was actually on the on the very front of the movie they put the one and only on that and you know most of those you mentioned were title tracks but not the soundtrack okay. just, but just, on the soundtrack if you went and bought the soundtrack the, you'd be there absolutely but it was the title the of the movie yeah yes sir on the soundtrack okay. you know and you've received three grammy nominations and multi-platinum gold and silver discs as well as oh, amassing yeah. worldwide yeah. chart success you produce projects in some of the record industry's leading record studios including abbey road as you mentioned which is where the That's beatles true. performed ocean way in la electric lady in new york now abbey road is like you said the beatles studio do you still work there sometimes when you take oh, yes. your students to London? Yeah. I go back as much as I can. Uh, I've actually recorded string sections there in, in the last years. And, you know, the, I, I really go back as much as I can. I love it. It's kind of a home from home for me. Oh, you I, love that place. Okay. When I was 21 years old, I was recording in there. You have to pinch yourself every day. Is the sidewalk where they're walking across the street, the Beatles are with one at a sink? Cross, is that... Yeah, the, cross, the crosswalk, they call it the zebra crossing. You call it a zebra, zebra crossing, I guess you'd say. But uh, yeah, that's the thing. That only took 10 minutes. That that whole shoot took 10 minutes. It was wow. nothing. But it, that was late. I think I was 70 when that happened or 69, 70. So wow. yeah, so I didn't, you know, when I hit Abbey Road, I didn't want to leave. I said, get me a futon. I'm going to stay.
So we'll compare that to Belmont in a second. But um, in mainstream music, you produce such legends as we talked about Roger Daltrey, The Alarm, Meatloaf, Jeff Beck, Mike Oldfield, Bonnie Tyler, and <laughs> Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber. Oh, are we really that old? We're really that old, though. Yeah, we are. In the contemporary Christian arena, you produce such luminaries as Phil Keegy, Graham Kendrick, Paul Oakley, Margaret Becker, and Mix the Newsboys. Yeah. Um, who were some of your most and least favorite to work with? Oh my gosh, that's too hard. They were all great. Everyone was great. I, I'm not just saying that. Everybody you know, you've ever come across. Okay. It's, a, it's an honor for me. Some were more difficult than others. You know, difficult times when people are going through difficult times in their life you know you have to weigh that up meatloaf when i met him was going through a particularly difficult time in his life um you know this is before he did the i won't do that and all that but he 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 was having a rough time financially he was you know signing a new record deal which i was part of which was arista records so we we made the album called bad attitude Oh, um, yeah. We actually did the pre-production in Stanford, Connecticut, in his house, where all the writers were showing up and we were working on the songs. And then we moved the whole band to London, England, to record the record. And we went to Marcus Studios, which unfortunately I don't think is still there. But then we did the vocals at Abbey Road. That's where I first met Roger Dolce, uh, because Meatloaf said uh, there's a, a duet on the record the actual title track called Bad Attitude. And I, he said, we need a male singer. Who would you suggest? And I said, well, the first thought in my mind is Roger Daltrey. And he went, wow, do you think he'd do it? And I said, well, we can find out, you know. And uh, Babe Ruth, that in actual fact, had opened for The Who in the 70s, actually on four dates in London. So we kind of, we kind of knew The Who a little bit. But then um, I called the office get roger and they said well here's his number give him a call and roger said if i like the song i'll come i'll come down so he listened to the track and he liked it and then we recorded on the monday in abbey road and he came and did the duet with meatloaf and that's how we got connected to do his records roger's records yeah wow very cool emi songwriter of the year award for the number one hit true believers by the christian music veteran Phil Keegy, I mentioned, and was nominated as BMI Songwriter of the Year for the progressive rock band Babe Ruth, of which you were the founder. The Mexican has since been embraced as the world's official breakdancers anthem and yeah. has been recorded and honored in full or part by the following artists. Grandmaster Flash, Sugar Ray, R. Kelly, Chemical Brothers, Prodigy, and Thalia and Mark Anthony, which was a U.S. number one album for the EMI Latin label. I'm old enough to remember all of that. Yeah, Latin and well, British well, rock and prog rock, you're everything. I'm, I'm hands off for this one, Steve. Um, <clears throat> here's what happened. Uh, honestly, how we heard it. Um, we were a progress, as I said, you know, an art rock, prog rock, whatever you want to call it, band. And I'd written this song when I was about 20 that uh, I felt should have a certain beat. And I told the drummer to I, in fact, played the drum of the beat that I wanted him to play it during the Mexican. I said, don't veer from the beat. Stay on the beat. No fills, no anything. You know, just that. He, he was very, he was a little bit disgruntled with that because he loved uh, Jethro Tull's drum of Clive Bunker, but well, another story. 
anyway, we, we recorded that along with other tracks at that time. Um, the band disbanded at um, in in about really 75, 76, because I got married and I wanted to settle down. I wanted to get into studios more. In 77, uh, this anomaly happened in the Bronx. Apparently, this is the story. They got hold of a white label. They didn't know who it was. The old vinyl, they had a white label with no no artist name on it or anything. Somehow it had been bootlegged and the DJs got hold of it. There was a DJ called Cool Herc, H-E-R-C, and a DJ called uh, probably a bit more of a well-known name as Grand Master Flash. So they started playing it in their in their disco, what we used to call disco parties, you know, yeah. in the Bronx and, and dance floor. And they would spin two of them, you know, and, and beat juggle and do all the clever stuff. And it became sort of a backbone of their, their performance. In fact, um, flatteringly, uh, Grandmaster Flash put it on his, his greatest hits, Untouched. And he said, this is the song that got me going. Hmm. Uh, it, it it and enigmatically, whatever the word is, crossed over to that dance floor, and then suddenly started to get sampled by every DJ, every DJ. I can't even start with that. You know the mashups, the the, the there's a break in it, which has become a famous break. Well, I'm now friends with Breakbeat Lou, who is from New York, who's who says. You know, he thinks I'm the closest thing to the Apostle Paul, but he, he says, this is the one that started everybody. Wow. This is the song. It's very flattering, but it, it was almost like we had no control over that. You know, so you're the you're the godfather of mixing. Well, I'm, I don't know whether well, I'm the godfather, but he says I'm one of the four pillars of hip hop. The other one was the Wrecking Crew and then possibly Kraftwerk. They had some songs that were sampled a lot back yeah. in the day, German sort of electronics. Um, and that was it. So it's it's hit all the history books now. It's in the, it's in all, all the hip hop books. Um, That's amazing. Well, I got a few more minutes with you. So I just want to jam through this real quick. Oh, please. Yeah. Um, you wrote the original score for Puffins and One Man's Island, which were performed yeah. by the London Symphony and Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, both BBC yeah. and PBS uh, wildlife documentaries for The Natural World, which premiered at the Royal Festival Hall in London. Yeah. composed and performed on the original score for the soccer world cup in 1994 oh, there you go co-founder and board executive of the british record producers guild now called the music producers guild mpg along with chairman sir george martin of the yes. beatles yeah. uh the colleague um and oh. colleague alan parsons uh and also a member of grammy u peony wing so you give back you you keep your eye on everybody who's doing what they should be yeah. doing and make sure they're doing yeah. a good job and then you engage the next generation you are a professor and you teach a course in both audio technology and music business programs at belmont university here in tennessee as yeah. well as sae institute along with additional colleagues yeah. alan participates in the student abroad program a faculty-led short program where students experience a month in london at the natives and music industry professionals which I assume means Abbey Road as well. So tell us about your time at Belmont. Are they supportive of you? Why Tennessee? Oh, yeah. All places on the on the map, and yeah. Um, yeah, and what's going on next? Well, Tennessee became 
here because of family. We we had uh, my family were from Georgia. Well, my wife, first wife, is from Georgia, and we ended up moving up here. It was a little bit of a, a family move. So um, let's go to the the Belmont side of things. I did start at Belmont in the music school. I was teaching uh, classical guitar and commercial guitar. And then the Mike Curb College, which is the business side, but really is also an audio side. We have an audio program there that I became part of. And I've pioneered really the production side of that. It's what I did for a living. And it's really just uh, kind of parlayed into that. And I've started a started classes there that are, I teach a master production class there for kids who want to be record producers honestly and I, I just love passing the torch it's it's a fabulous thing for me to just train kids up and see them successful it's nothing to do with me I don't want that it's not an ego thing what I celebrate is their success if I see somebody coming up through the ranks that I believe would you know, be worthy of the industry. And these chairs, they're not easy to get. You know, they're really not easy. But we've had a lot of success. Um, and my co-professors in Belmont are just amazing. They're all uh, just geniuses in their own right. But I've kind of pioneered the production side because that's what I've done all my life. So now we have uh, the study abroad program is actually a, a, a practicum with the songwriters. So one professor who is Drew Ramsey would take his kids and I would take 12 of my kids and they would collaborate when we we're over in England and and then go and get a cultural shock there and go around all of England and see Liverpool, the Beatles and Edinburgh, Scotland and Stonehenge. You've got to go and look at rocks for a day and that kind of thing. Oh, but, that's amazing. Uh, it, it's an ex, it's a, a life-changing uh, experience for these kids. No, most really? of them have never been outside outside the United States. So it, it, it's a thrill for me to go back to my home country and do that, um, you know, and, and also pass the torch to them in, in every way I can to be the future, really, of, of record production. And they are, you know. Yeah. This, and I remind them, and I said, this is this is a heavy, a heavy torch to take, but you guys can be successful. You guys That's can be. I'm one of those. Right. In the last few minutes here, um, yes, a Clackmanen, a Clackmanen country singer has signed a contract with a Tennessee record label in what is quickly becoming a dream come true. Francesca yeah. Gray blends country music with a Celtic undertone. You are producing her. Yeah. Uh, she said, yeah. "This is what I've been dreaming about since I was a wee girl." She said, yeah. "How is that yeah. going? And what's next for you?" Well, that album now is almost done. It's getting ready to hit, and I will be the first to tell you when that drops. Um, we've done an orchestral record with her. That This was her dream with me. She said, I want to do a record with orchestra. She, I just want to record my favorite songs. And she said that if you would orchestrate it, then that would be it. She's gone more towards Adele than, say, Carrie Underwood on this one. Okay. You know, it's it's is morphed across a bit more towards that classic ballad thing, but she is a a very very uh, good singer, and uh, 
she is very lucky to have a ballad kind of voice and also a, a kind of a rock voice. We've actually done a Bonnie Raitt cover, which is uh, oh, nice. very exciting to me. Cool. Well, and thank you for your time. I'm glad to know you. you. We are at the end here. Let everyone know where they can find out more about you, follow you if you're on social media, maybe even take a class. Tell them what you want to tell. That's good. No, I'm fine. Just find me on the Facebook and I'm in there. So. Alan Shockley on Facebook. All right. Well, thanks again for coming on. All right. Thank you, Steve. If you're like me and sick of the woke, unfunny content coming out of Hollywood these days and looking for something new and exciting, I found the website for you, movienight.com. The folks at movienight.com, that's movienight, one word, .com, has the first universal loyalty program that offers businesses like yours the opportunity to attract customers with their exclusive lineup of world-class titles. Titles like Daddy Daughter Trip with Rob Schneider, Triumph with Terrence Howard, and Nefarious, last year's blockbuster hit. Movie Night was founded to positively impact society through media. Check it out at movienight.com and enjoy the show. I don't Welcome to the Steve and Steve segment of our show, where we cover what we just heard as always. Producer Steve, what did you think of our guest, Alan Shacklock? Steve, I like those kind of interviews. Um, I love music. I love the performing arts. And so it was a nice respite from all the stuff that we've been having to deal with in the news and stuff. So thank you so much for bringing Alan on. What an accomplished individual. And you know what? He landed his feet quite well as being a professor and in a school because a lot of his contemporaries were probably figuring out, I don't know where my money's coming from because if they're not getting any royalties, they're not being able to perform or their music's out of style, they're, they're, they're on poor, poor man's um, stoop and he is still working at it and doing wonderful things. So thank you for bringing Ellen on and yeah, kudos, they Alan, can't all be like the job. Eagles and do the uh, when hell freezes over tour, hell freezes over two, two hell freezes over oh, three, or I, Guns and Roses, and do your same what, old songs over and over again for fifty years. He he made a career out of it. Some of these artists, quite frankly, the rockers, they're not even yeah. playing their own instruments. They're actually playing to a track. Oh and yeah, they've been out in Millie Vanilli of the seventies and eighties. I've been to plenty of metal. Uh, actually, in Las Vegas, I went to the uh, heavy metal hair band Hall of Fame induction, and I saw Scorpions. Twisted Sister, Rat, uh, a whole bunch of this stuff, and they were basically propped up on on stilts. It was perfect for Vegas because they weren't even alive anymore, but they're still doing their songs <laughs> to the track. <laughs> to and the if track. the power were to go out, it would have been over. So, all right, moving on. We got a long one. Let's start with uh, my late night comedy show debut. You got to pay attention to hear it. We'll cut, well, you know, kind of. Stay with me. Clip number one. Just look at the mayoral race unfolding in the city of Franklin, Tennessee where their current Republican mayor is facing this woman, Gabrielle Hansen, a real estate agent and current alderman. She's branded herself as a hardcore MAGA candidate and has posted photos of herself at Mar-a-Lago. And look how happy she is there. That's the face of someone who just dined out on a well-done steak and read some classified documents on the toilet. <laughs> anyway, back in April, Hansen made news for opposing the city's Pride event 
arguing that its participants couldn't be trusted around children and offering this critique of previous performers. In one of the pictures of Jaden Diori Fierce, one of the misfits, she's clad in an Elmo-themed drag outfit, which I'm sure to an underage individual, this could create confusion in their mind as to what's being represented. Okay, but by that logic, we should outlaw children from walking around Times Square too, because <laughs> seeing Olaf from Frozen with his head popped off smoking a black and mild is way more confusing than someone wearing eyeshadow in an Elmo-themed bodysuit. So that is last week tonight, host John Oliver skewering Tennessee MAGA Gabrielle Hansen, as you may have uh, heard on my show a couple times. So we are national news, apparently. Jaden Dior Fierce is an American drag performer from Nashville, Tennessee. She was a contestant on season seven of RuPaul's Drag Show. You got to have your deodorant. You don't want to smell like dried tomatoes and cornbread. You have to have some hairspray. Make sure your hair is whooped and puffed out and done. Oh, and you got to have your lashes, I guess, honey. You can't do a show without lashes, she said. Clip number two. I'm Bracken. Um, I'm a 12-year-old hyper queen, meaning a 12-year-old female drag queen. My drag name is also my real name. Simple. I'm Jason Kerr, and my drag name is Susan B. Anthony. My name is Nemes. My drag name is Lactatia. I'm Stefan, and my drag name is Laddie Gaga. Drag, it drag says. is a lot of things. Drag is a performing art because you are the canvas. Showing who you are, but like with singing and dancing. Drag is just a self-expression and an art. You are the canvas. You do your own thing and you perform. A man transforms into a woman for entertainment and a woman transforms into a man for entertainment. I'm of the deep end, watch as I dive in, out of beneath the ground. Not exactly Times Square Sesame Street costume wearers, like Oliver said. Kids grooming other kids. Back to Oliver. What's he got to say? Also, for the record, her name is Jaden Dior fierce, not Diori, and Elmo is not remotely her finest work because she is constantly serving cartoon looks. Have you ever seen a minion serve body? Because you have now. Hansen also tried to pressure the Nash... Clapping seals. Very nice. So, um, yeah, let's hit the rest of that. I think we can move to the next section. Oh, on the uh, Oliver? Yeah. Okay. Feel out of funding a Juneteenth celebration, saying, I don't want my tax dollars or fees off of plane tickets going to radical agendas. And with all due respect, you're talking to an airport, Gabrielle. It doesn't care about you. It doesn't care about anyone. It's an airport. The only food available is either dill pickle almonds or brisket nachos with no middle ground. It's acceptable to drink at 7 a.m. and they will sell your lost luggage. The airport is a cruel, unfeeling dimension, uninterested in your culture. It's an airport. Bullshit. Oh, is that yep. it? Yeah, a little more. Yep. Now, is that it? Since then, Hansen seems to have tried to broaden... 
Yep, there we go, to the airport. Okay, it's an airport. Okay, very funny. That laugh track is starting to sound a little stale, but Franklin Alderman at large, Gabriel Hansen, recently emailed Nashville International Airport President Doug Krulin that if the airport did not withdraw financial support from an upcoming Juneteenth festival in Franklin, citizens were prepared to retaliate against the board's support of radical agendas. Six weeks after the state took, uh, there's another thing about the airport, by the way, six weeks after the state took majority control of the Nashville airport board under a newly enacted state law, BNA, that's the Nashville airport, leaders announced they would start a multi-decade process to build a second terminal. Inklings of airport leadership wanted to build a second terminal have floated around for years as Nashville's airport passenger traffic skyrocketed over the past decade and it eyed direct flights to Asia. Okay, sounds good. But added to the new state law was a provision granting the authority sweeping eminent domain and zoning powers to buy property around its facility, which no other airport in Tennessee can do. Previously, the airport had to go through Metro Nashville Council to activate the eminent domain process. Now the airport board can bypass input from Nashville's local representatives, giving it government-like authority to seize land deemed necessary for its expansion. Mm -hmm. That's the airport he's talking about. Next clip. We talking more Oliver or Jaden? Uh, actually, let me just remind you of this. As an elected official, Hansen's email continues, I am respectfully requesting that you either withdraw the financial support and public endorsement of FJEC or write a check to the African American Heritage Society and allow them to advertise you as a sponsor, providing the same financial level of funding that you did to the Franklin Justice and Equity Coalition. Keep that in mind a second. African American Heritage Society. We'll talk about that later. Uh, back to Jaden. Baby Rad, work that body. Oh, work that shirt. Oh, well, you work those lashes. Mm, honey, you work that beard. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't quite sound right. Mm -hmm. That's because y'all doing it wrong. It's work that put. Wow! <laughs> you got that right. Of course, it's the beautiful, talented Jaden Dior Fierce on Hey Queen this week, honey. Yeah. Hashtag Jaden's here, darling. You better get into it. He pronounced Dior correctly, apparently, oh. for Oliver. Back to Oliver, please. Gordon her base posting photos of diverse groups of supporters, including this one, labeled as an executive women's club, uh, who she said had provided invaluable support and encouragement with a hashtag vote Hansen. But while that might seem like an endorsement from those women just watch what happened when a local reporter tracked one of them down and asked a pretty simple question do you support gabriel hansen i do not i actually do not know who that is after some on social media noticed the pic seemed to have been taken at a restaurant in chicago hansen posted an update on facebook claiming these are all my friends that have relocated to nashville brentwood and franklin and they all support me the women say that's a lie. Any message you would have for her? I would encourage her to go make genuine friends so she can take photos with those folks if she's looking for supporters. Um, there's no need to clone pictures on the internet to make up a story. None of us need that. Wow. Not only are those women clearly not your friends, you definitely just united them against you. I 
I guarantee you, one of them dropped your post in the group chat, and the replies are still going right now. That laugh track is awful. Yes, glad you pointed that out. But he, how many uh, women did you count in that picture? I couldn't Here take, I, I wasn't watching. I'm looking at the clock. Spoiler alert, there's 10. How many did he interview? One. Yeah, one out of 10. So those women clearly are not his friends. Her friends, he said. Let's hear what she has to say about that. This day and age, this is 2023. Mm -hmm. You can imagine you get a random call from some crazy guy going, do you know Gabrielle Henson? What do you feel about her vote on pride? Because that was the question that they started out with. The first thing a woman does is protect another woman. And they go, I don't know what you're talking about. If somebody called me about one of my friends, I'd be like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Because I protect my girlfriends. Girls protect girls. Women protect women. And we've seen each other through highs, through lows. Um, it's, it's been an incredible journey. And in fact, I'm going to see a couple of them this weekend. So nice. for, they're out there. And you're <laughs> going to meet some of them. And you're going to hear the story actually from them of their reaction when he called them. That's great. Yeah, I like to hear that side of the story, too. There's because... a couple that have not really participated. What's the name of that show? Oh, that's called Mill Creek View Tennessee Podcast with Gabriel Hansen. Uh, episode 131, folks. Mm-hmm. Back to Oliver. And the thing is, the thing is, Hansen has been caught lying about weird shit a truly ridiculous amount of times. Earlier this year, during a podcast interview, she claimed to have predicted the infinite school shooting in Nashville stating that she'd had a gut premonition about it, chalking it up to what could have been a Holy Spirit thing. What's more, she also claimed that she'd told a police officer about that premonition when he came to her home over a different issue. The problem is that same local reporter tracked down that officer's body cam video, which told a different story. During the 23-minute video, she never mentions anything remotely like the Covenant School shooting. No mention of a premonition, no mention of an active shooter, no mention of the Holy Spirit. And Hansen's fabrications have gone even further in a talk radio interview questioning how actress Melissa Joan Hart happened to be near Covenant at the time of the shooting to help children who were trying to escape. Well, baby, that's why Melissa Joan Hart was there. She must have known it was going to happen also. Wait, what? <laughs> Melissa Joan Hart psychically knows when a school shooting is about to happen? That is not something an elected official should say in an interview. It's what a Disney Channel exec probably screamed in 2002 after inhaling a metric ton of cocaine. <laughs> and before we go any further, let's just take a moment. By the way, there was another individual there, too, that just happened to be showing up. But that's a whole other story, Steve. But your podcast got mentioned. So it's a story I'm about to mention, but yeah, there it was, my debut. I'm famous on late night, a podcast interview. How nice to be acknowledged. He also said talk radio interview. That's Matt Murphy's show. Yep. Neither of us got acknowledged for using our copyrighted material. Might have gotten a few more clicks off it since this is now written up in Vanity Fair, Yahoo News, MSN, LGBTQ Nation, crooksanddollars.com, whatever the hell that is, The Daily Beast, of course, BNN, uh, unbelievable. And I'm the one that gets in Twitter jail. Uh, yeah. 
Now, Melissa Joan Hart, haha, so funny, nice punchline. But I don't think that's who Gabrielle was talking about. She may have meant Ashby Beasley, a gun control activist who survived last year's massacre at an Illinois July 4th parade, spoke out at police press conference on Monday's mass shooting at a national elementary school to make an impassioned plea for gun control legislation. Quote, aren't you guys tired of covering this? Aren't you guys tired of being here and having to cover all these mass shootings? Asked Ashley Beasley. I'm from Highland Park, Illinois. My son and I survived a mass shooting over the summer. That's terrible. I, I feel really bad for her and her children. I am in Tennessee on a family vacation, my son visiting my sister-in-law. Huh, that's ironic. Beasley's comments came as TV news crews were wrapping up covering coverage of a Metro Nashville police press conference after authorities announced the murder of six people, three staff members and three nine-year-old children at the Covenant School by a 28-year-old former student armed with a two armed with two semi-automatic rifles and a handgun. Quote, I have been lobbying in DC since we survived a mass shooting in July, Beasley continued. I have met with over 130 lawmakers. How is this still happening? Why are our children still dying? And why are we failing them? Only in America does this happen, where we keep seeing this again and again and again. Yeah, tell that to Hamas and Gaza. She added, calling for stricter background checks on gun buyers and a ban on assault-style semi-automatic weapons. Aha! The real agenda. There is a definitely more than meets the eye there. Where there is smoke, there is fire with the anti-gun lobby, and Oliver glossed right over it and made a joke out of it. Next clip. Moment to acknowledge that reporter, Phil Williams, because he's been all over this story, and we featured his work on this show a bunch in the past. If you are a politician in Tennessee, Phil has his foot on your goddamn neck. <laughs> His official News Channel 5 bio features a quote from a Nashville political strategist saying, if the press calls, call your PR person. If Phil Williams calls, call your lawyer because you are in trouble. This is a bad, bad man. You do not fuck around with Phil Williams. And it seems Gabrielle Hansen is currently in her finding out era when it comes to her dealings with him because Phil has uncovered so much weird new context around her life. Remember her bullshit outrage over the local Pride event? Well, Phil discovered something that her husband once did that suggests a hell of a double standard. Children seeing images that they could not unsee was why the Franklin alderman said she tried to block a Pride celebration at a Franklin Park, saying in a podcast interview it was a question of basic ah. morality. Yet where was her morality during Chicago's 2008 Pride Parade before the Hansons moved to Tennessee? At the time, Tom Hanson was running a Republican campaign for Congress, and organizers agreed to let him in. He told the local LGBTQ newspaper, quote, so it just came to me, I said, Said, maybe I'll wear an American flag speedo and my wife said if you do that I'll hold you to it magnificent so just to recap snatched Elmo irreparably harmful to children star-spangled ball bag here that's apparently completely fine with her also and I'm not here to police anyone else's drag but is he tucked <laughs> could, could, could just have been cold it was June, though. But anyway, if all that wasn't enough, just this week, Hansen was caught up in yet another scandal, this time involving an eye-catching group that showed up to support and protect her at a candidate forum. 
The man on the left is Sean Kaufman, who has been described by the Stop Anti-Semitism watchdog group as, quote, a disturbed neo-Nazi and Holocaust denier with a documented history of violence and a massive cache of firearms. Then there's Brad Lewis. He's the operator of the Lewis Country Store on the far west side of Nashville, a store known for its extreme right-wing messaging. When the store recently went on the market, Gabrielle Hansen was the real estate agent who got the listing. Steve, I just have to point out that they had a little sign there that says uh, climate change is not the reason for, uh, you know, and it goes on. So, yeah, he's extreme for denying uh, all the WHO crap. A recent investigation by the Southern Poverty Law Center revealed how the second floor of the store was being used as a white nationalist fight club. Lewis responded in a post on Telegram calling himself an actual literal Nazi. Ms. Henson, the, the people you're with have described themselves as literal Nazis. Is this the type of people you should be associating with? Excuse me, They have said they're literal Nazis. Again, Phil Williams is just wrecking her, waving a cell phone in Hansen's face and asking, so, uh, do you hang out with Nazis or what? And doing it loud enough for the whole row to hear. Also, what on earth did that cursed Zillow listing look like? Great opportunity to own slash operate your business in this income-generating three-unit mixed-use white supremacist building. First floor is a store with terrible vibes, and the second floor unit is a neo-Nazi fight club sold as is. Now, Hansen denies engaging that group as security, despite the fact that she walked into that meeting with a Holocaust denier while her husband was escorted in by a guy with a proud boy's face tattoo. And she's tried to deflect criticism over the fact that she took a literal Nazi's real estate listing, but even in doing so, made some bold choices. If you based me on all the clients that I'm representing currently, I would be a white supremacist, neo-Nazi, I would be a lesbian like my one client, and I would be black too. <laughs> so that is who I would be if you're going to blame me for the clients that I represent, because those are the clients at this very moment that I'm representing. And I would probably be a Muslim jihadist as well, because I have a Middle Eastern client too. Oh, oh, okay, Gabs. But uh, you did just imply one of your clients was a Muslim jihadist simply based on the fact that they are Middle Eastern. So I'd say you're probably more of a white supremacist neo-Nazi than you are lesbian or black. <laughs> and look, in a world that made sense, this woman would obviously have withdrawn from this mayoral race in shame, but she still has supporters. There are lawn signs up for her in Franklin. And there is a real chance that she could still win this election because while her numerous scandals are clearly almost cartoonish in their extremity, her behaviour is entirely emblematic of Republican politics from the local level all the way up to the top, where if we learned anything this week is that far-right Republicans maintain a vice-like grip over the entire party. And it frankly seems like our best bet at exposing them going forward might be if we can somehow get more reporters to take a page from Nashville's nosiest bitch. Wow, I'm sure glad I don't watch that guy's show. I'd vomit every time I see this guy's face, Steve. Yeah, so there was a clip there where she talks about the white supremacist, that being the lesbian or the black or whatever. That was on Jeremy Sladen's show, Jay Slay, another podcaster and friend of mine from my church. Uh, nice of them to show his clip, no mention, but you can find him at Slay Den Jeremy on Twitter. Not banned, interestingly enough. 
Um, as for the husband, well, at least he's patriotic in his swimwear choices. And that, was a, pretty... that was a while back. Maybe things have changed in their mind from that point. You might think so, yeah. And Franklin is definitely a different town than Chicago. But Phil Williams, a bitch. At least if they didn't call me and Matt out by our show's names, he didn't call us a bitch, which Phil now uses as his Twitter image. So must be very proud of that. Um, it is true. There are signs up now more than ever. So not sure if their attempts to sway this election worked or not. Early voting ended yesterday and election day is next week. So it'll be over soon. And I'm glad for that. Um, they should be thrilled. I got her on tape in April and again last month so they could create all this content. Maybe next controversy, they will actually embed the link to my show that you all are kind enough to listen to 139 times now. Stay tuned for my thoughts of the day. With Columbia, Tennessee-based EnergizeHealth.com, you lose fat fast, simply and naturally, without restrictive exercise or cardboard dry, tasteless food. Revolutionize your health with this proprietary 88-day science from John and Chelsea Jubilee. People report getting off medications and reversing ailments. Energy, mental clarity, and alertness go through the roof. Look and feel many years younger and oftentimes unrecognizable. I know. I'm an alumnus and lost 70 pounds of fat with John and Chelsea and wouldn't have energy to do three shows a week without it. Hit the link in show notes for your free consultation and discount. Money back guarantee so you have nothing to lose but unhealthy fat. EnergizedHealth.com. Hey, my name is Amy Souza. I am a women's rights activist uh, and workshop leader. And you are listening to the Mill Creek View podcast. Welcome to my quotes for the day. But before I share, I want to remind everyone to subscribe to Mill Creek View podcast. Just go to Rumble or Spotify or iTunes, search for Mill Creek View and hit the subscribe button. Be sure to check out our new business show, The CEO Special, where I interview great business folks doing good business. I really hope you like it. Here's the new logo. It may come and go. We'll see. But I hope you on Rumble enjoy seeing that. Ah, the 70s. And we'll keep on fighting to the end. We are the champions. Queen, 1977. That's the year Elvis died. Whisper words of wisdom. Let it be. The Beatles, 1970. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. Imagine John Lennon, 1971. Year I was born. Such a lovely place. Such a lovely face. Hotel California, the Eagles, 1976. I hate the Eagles. I'll tell you why one day. Stairway to Heaven, Led Zeppelin, 1971. Your stairway lies on the whispering wind. Oh, mirror in the sky, what is love? Fleetwood Mac, Landslide, 1975. I bet you think the song is about you. You're so vain. Carly Simon, 1972. It's only teenage wasteland. Baba O'Reilly, The Who, 1971. Dream until your dreams come true. True, 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 true. Dream on, Aerosmith, 1973. If I leave here tomorrow, would you still remember me? Freebird, Leonard Skinner, 1973. One from me. Not all Democrats are communists, but all communists are Democrats. That's it for this episode. 
Thank you, Alan Shacklock, for teaching the next generation of songwriters and composers that humans make better artists than computers. Until next time, this is your host, Steve Abramowitz, Editor-in-Chief of mcview.us. Peace in our time and G2G. Let's go out with Alan's newest protege, Francesca Gray, Little Songbird. There's a photo in an album he don't notice anymore. That's me. That's me. There's a stack of cards and letters buried deep inside a county fair They were looking for America behind every turn Flying the very colors that so many love to burn I'll cruise the countryside with my dad and my brother Row after row of cotton and corn Moving through this place just like Any views or opinions represented on the podcast are personal and belong solely to the creator and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the creator may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated.